Hello and welcome to another episode of the Daily Remedy Podcast. Today we're here with Mr. Zachary Barron, Director of Health Policy and the Law Initiative at the Newell Institute. Also, leader of the Healthcare Litigation Tracker. Launched in February 2023, the Healthcare Litigation Tracker is a free digital resource that tracks and analyzes healthcare litigation in the United States. The tracker contains current health policy and litigation cases with an emphasis on healthcare access, coverage, affordability, transparency, and equity. And with that, I'd like to welcome Mr. Zachary Brown. Thank you so much for having me. Certainly. Thank you for joining us. The Healthcare Litigation Tracker is about to reach the one-year mark, so congratulations on that. Can you tell us how the Healthcare Litigation Tracker works and why you believe such a resource is necessary? Sure. So we recognize that for a range of people that are interested in healthcare policy and and litigation, it can be very challenging to follow the, the twists and turns of what's going on in Congress, what's going on in regulatory agencies, and increasingly, as we see in uh, a number of major healthcare policy disputes, uh, what is happening in the courts, because the courts are having really the, the last say on these major policy uh, disputes. And so both in, in talking to different stakeholders in the healthcare system, but in talking to policymakers, people in the media, patient groups, consumer groups, uh, you know, practitioners, all, all sorts of folks that uh, have an interest and stake in terms of trying to create, uh, whether it be trying to promote greater access to, to higher quality care, trying to bring down healthcare costs, trying to improve healthcare outcomes. We really saw that there was a problem in terms of being able to uh, understand what is happening in these uh, healthcare lawsuits and understand ways if if folks are interested to become more engaged in the process. And so we created the healthcare litigation tracker, uh, which is a tool that is both for lawyers as well as non-lawyers to try and demystify the, the litigation process. And uh, while, while we don't represent to both have the bandwidth to be able to track every single major healthcare dispute, focusing on particular issues such as access uh, to, to insurance, uh, uh, cost containment, transparency, health equity, we uh, both have organized the website around a, a core set uh, of these issues which you can then, if you're interested, for example, in the Affordable Care Act or in the Medicare drug negotiation program under the Inflation Reduction Act, you can see uh, cases that are ongoing. You can learn, you can both get free access. It's a free tool. You can get free access to court filings uh, in these cases, whether it be filings from the government, whether it be filings from plaintiffs bringing these lawsuits, as well as different amicus briefs that uh, interested academics, experts, you know, organizations may be filing in the cases so that you uh, have the ability, uh, anyone has the ability to uh, log in, uh, to, to go to the website. You can actually create an account and get updates uh, of different pages so that you can, uh, because there's always new filings going on in cases and what's true uh, last week uh, may be different in terms of a, a new filing or a decision in that case. And so you can be as up to date in terms of where things stand in the litigation and have a better understanding of what that means for a given uh, policy program or initiative. Thank you. At this time, I'd like to open the main web 
page itself so that the audience can take a look. This is the healthcare litigation tracker. For those who may be interested in learning more about how they can get involved or learn more about the cases, can you give a few examples of those who may be using from the clinical world or the non-clinical world? I know you had mentioned that this is for both lawyers and non-lawyers alike. Can you give a few examples of how different people can use it and what resources they can use? Sure. So we know from both, uh, it's wonderful to hear feedback from from users uh, of the website to know how they're using it. And so, for example, you know, myself, I used to work uh, on different congressional committees. I hear from staff uh, on the Hill that uh, I know are, are using this as a resource to be able to track uh, different cases. We know that there are members uh, of the media that, that also use it to be able to understand the, the twists and turns in cases. And we know that different uh, you know, patient groups uh, and, and, and consumer groups, as well as certainly I have gotten also uh, you know, correspondence from, from physicians uh, and others in a range of settings that have said, for example, I'm really interested in, in understanding uh, whether there be different lawsuits about transparency issues and, and certain requirements on hospitals to both to display and share certain information about prices. You can then uh, go through the, the issues tag, um, which if you want to click there, you can see uh, a, a range of different issues. You can also, for example, if, if there's a particular uh, you know, in terms of health equity, we have seen a number of lawsuits, both brought by state attorneys general, as well as different ideological organizations that are trying to hamper any type of state, federal, even private sector initiative to address health equities in uh, in our healthcare system. You can learn more about those lawsuits. You can learn more about uh, what types of programs and initiatives are facing uh, you know, legal uh, attack. And then when you look through the decisions, you can also see some of the rationale that courts use, whether to uh, reject those challenges or, or or grant those challenges. And what we try and do, of course, not only through the tracker, but also in terms of what we at the Health Policy and the Law Initiative write about on a daily, weekly basis, we also take uh, you know, whether it be case developments from the tracker, we'll then write about that, whether it's on uh, the O'Neill Institute website, whether it's in health affairs or other forum, whether it's through social media. And so what we try and do is take some of these issues from the tracker and then uh, try and still even make them even more accessible uh, to, to folks that are interested in the healthcare community. Nice. At this point, I'm going to stop sharing the tracker because we're going to go to various cases in a few minutes. But I want to get a sense of how somebody who may not be familiar with the website can navigate and seek resources or help should they get lost somewhere along the way. Are there any help desk services or any resources users can use to navigate through the website? So uh, certainly we are always trying to identify different improvements and enhancements to make the website more usable. Um, if, if there are particular questions or concerns, um, we do on the, I think it's on the About Us page, there's links to our particular bios, uh, and there you can see our email addresses if, if there are any issues uh, that, um, that people have when they're, when they're navigating the website. But we are, uh, 
I think it's exciting because this tracker, as you noted, is still not at the one-year mark. It's wonderful to see all the great use that we've already received from a wide range of users. But we also recognize that there's always more that we can do to improve the usability and accessibility, particularly for those non-lawyers that we know because there's still a lot of dense you know, legal filings. It can still be hard to understand uh, where things are uh, in a case or what may come next. And so I think we're still uh, always having discussions both internally and then trying to get external feedback from our users about ways to improve the tracker. Yeah, and I can personally attest to just how open and helpful everybody has been in just the few short weeks that I've been looking at this website. I found an abundance of resources, and if I couldn't find something, there's always somebody available to help. And so I want the listening audience to know that if you're not familiar with the case or you're not familiar with all the legal nuances, there is help, and that going on this site is just to start to learning about the various legal nuances in the case. And in that vein, I want to go over three cases that we have pre-selected so that people can understand how to navigate through. So the first case we're going to go through is a case that involves the American College of Pediatricians, and it's listed on the healthcare tracker site itself, and it's the American College of Pediatricians v. Becerra et al. Mr. Zachary, can you explain the key issues in this case? Sure. So this case is one of several ongoing lawsuits that we see that's challenging a major provision under the Affordable Care Act, which is the, the non-discrimination uh, protections that the law provides. The, uh, the Affordable Care Act prohibits entities that receive federal funds from discriminating on the basis of race, color, national origin, age, disability, or sex. And the scope of these non-discrimination protections have really been a subject of dispute since the enactment of the Affordable Care Act. We've seen the Obama, uh, Trump, and Biden administrations take varying approaches with respect to this provision. And also, I think this lawsuit should be understood in the context of some recent Supreme Court decisions uh, about the, the scope of non-discrimination protections for uh, for LGBTQ folks. Uh, they, they, the court issued a major decision finding that uh, under Title VII, which applies in the employment context, that the, the pro prohibition on the discrimination of because of sex includes discrimination because of sexual orientation and transgender status. And so in, in this lawsuit, we've seen certain trade associations and uh, individual providers that have uh, what I think they would describe as staunch religious and ideological views about gender-affirming care They've alleged that this non-discrimination uh, protection provision requires them and their members to provide these uh, certain healthcare services, which they claim violates a, a slew of constitutional and, and statutory provisions. And I think what you what you've really seen here in this lawsuit and others is a fight about whether or not protections on the basis of sex should apply to. Uh, services that relate to, to sexual orientation, gender identity, and sex characteristics. In navigating through the website, how would an interested party go through the various features and learn the key legal issues and other facets of the case? Yeah, so what we try and do on the tracker is both when you first get to a case page, we try and early on both get at what are the goals of a particular lawsuit and some what are the 
core legal issues, whether they be um, story challenges, the Administrative Procedure Act is uh, a law that uh, you know, allows certain parties to challenge actions by federal agencies and court. Uh, we also can see here there are a number of different constitutional challenges, such as under the First Amendment and, and the Due Process Clause. Um, and we see uh, over here in terms of the goal uh, of what the, the parties are trying to do to really block the government from enforcing a particular statute or, or regulation. And so early on, before, as you get to a case page, we try and provide some context in terms of what are the goals, what are the legal issues? And then when you go down, we have uh, on every case page, we have some context in terms of why this matters. Uh, and uh, as you can see, as you can see here, which again is sort of a short summary to talk about both what are the plaintiffs uh, alleging in their lawsuit, uh, and, and I talked about here in terms of the enforcement of certain non-discrimination protections, but what this will mean for people that have historically uh, faced various difficulties in accessing, in accessing healthcare services, um, and, and we also get into the potential impacts uh, as well. And so, what we start is we try and provide some when you get to a case page, some broad context about what it means. And then as you scroll down, uh, and this is where I think um, you know, for some people maybe that are that are non-lawyers, I think just having that brief snapshot may be helpful, both for certain non-lawyers and lawyers that say, well, that's great, you provided a quick summary. I wanna really get into it myself and click on some of the different briefs. I wanna see, I wanna see some of the amicus briefs uh, and see some of the other types of organizations that I've gotten engaged in this litigation. And so then you can click through um, some of the, and this case is up in in the appellate court. It's up in the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals. So you can see some of the um, key briefs as well as two amicus briefs that have been filed in, in support of the plaintiffs. And if you want to learn more about some of the arguments that they're making, uh, then you can click through those, those filings yourself. For... Those who are coming from the clinical world, and this may be their first exposure to litigation, or at least their first way of understanding litigation cases, what are some of the key points that they should focus on? Should they look at the briefs? Should they look at the summaries? For the clinical world coming in, can you give some context on how they can absorb the information here? Yeah, that's a great question. I think it will depend sometimes on uh, you know what the particular case is or what types of filings there have been. I think from a from a clinical perspective, uh, and of course, this is uh, this is a lawyer here talking about you know a clinical perspective, uh, someone that is of course not practiced medicine myself. Uh, I do think certainly having a, a basic understanding of what these challenges would mean for certain marginalized groups, and thinking about women and LGBTQ folks, what it means for their ability to access uh, different uh, services and care. I also think certainly if uh, you know if you're trying to get a better understanding of uh, of the significance or at least the, the stakes of the case, sometimes particularly when I think there's amicus briefs on both sides, often the amicus briefs um, sometimes they can of course also still be written in uh, dense legalese language, but often the amicus briefs I think can make some of these arguments a little more uh, accessible, both in terms of identifying what the stakes are of a different case, what are the uh, sometimes some of the amicus briefs may be making different policy arguments or trying to highlight uh, different data that may um, be relevant for the court. And so, uh, while I'm not sure it's in some of the particular filings in, in this case, 
you know, b- before we talked, I was just looking at some recent data analysis from the Center for American Progress. And what they found was that uh, 17% of LGBTQ respondents reported having concerns that if they disclosed their sexual orientation to a healthcare provider, they could be denied good uh, medical care. And similarly, 49% of transgender and non-binary respondents um, reported uh, similar concerns in terms of disclosing their gender identity to a healthcare provider. And so I do think sometimes when we see amicus briefs or other outside research um, where different organizations are trying to contribute that knowledge uh, to the courts, it can shed light a little bit more about the practical implications of the case and what it could mean in, in clinical settings. Certainly, we recognize uh, not only in this area, but even, uh, of course, when we talk about uh, things like access uh, to abortion or reproductive health care uh, more broadly, we are seeing this clash right now between what both at the, the federal level as well as different state policy uh, initiatives uh, have this direct impact, of course, on, on clinical practice. Um, and there have been all types of news reports about you know what it means and, and the challenges that providers are having in these settings. Um, trying to uh, navigate these new legislative developments and sometimes uh, legal developments as well. Well said. I'm really glad that you highlighted the value of um, amicus brief documents. Um, as a clinician, learning about cases and learning about the legal implications, often the first step for me personally would be to look at some of the amicus briefs to get a sense of how clinical policy meets legal issues or at least legal procedural issues. So I think that's great advice for those who are coming from the clinical world to perhaps start with the amicus briefs and learn a little bit more about the policy implications. Great. I'd like to now transition to the second case that we're going to discuss. This one is Barrows et al. v. Humana. Would you like to go ahead and discuss the case and summarize it for us? Sure. So this case is one of many that I think we're going to be seeing in future years concerning the rapid growth of uh, artificial intelligence, AI, in in the healthcare arena. Um, As I imagine some of this audience are already seeing, we're seeing rapid growth in AI capabilities and increased reliance by companies in in various sectors across the healthcare system that uh, I expect will continue to result in novel legal issues uh, and challenges. Um, and certainly, we expect that the increased utilization of AI by different players in the healthcare system will likely lead to uh, new uh, challenges related to uh, affordability, access, and, and equity. I know that uh, a number of uh, experts have raised certain concerns about different clinical AI tools and, and how they can perpetuate and, and exacerbate um, systemic disparities, uh, especially across racial, ethnic, and, and other minoritized groups. So this particular case concerns the use of an AI tool by a Medicare uh, Advantage plan. And as I imagine that uh, you know, listeners know, Medicare Advantage has really been growing at a skyrocketing pace for the last two decades. In, in 2023, almost 31 million people were enrolled in, in a, a Medicare Advantage plan, and that now accounts for more than of the eligible Medicare population. And so this case, uh, the the plaintiffs, they had their post-acute care coverage terminated, and they filed a class action lawsuit alleging that what the uh, insurance company did by relying on, on one of these AI tools to deny certain medical claims under their Medicare Advantage plans uh, constituted 
breach of contract. Uh, they brought some other contract claims, breaching the implied covenant of good faith and fair dealing, and just enrichment and uh, insurance bad faith. And so at, at the end of the day, what this lawsuit is about is whether the Medicare Advantage plan really held up to their you know, end uh, of the bargain as, as required under their uh, contract. The potential impact of this is quite strong. Can you help explain what the potential impact would be of this legal ruling and clinical implications for the individual provider or patient? Yeah. So look, I think we all recognize that technology can play an important role in helping patients to access high quality care. But the flip side is that as we have these advancements in technology, that same technology can also be used to keep patients from getting the care that they need. And so concerns have been raised about improper usage of AI to make coverage decisions, particularly while ignoring clinical determinations by actual providers and how this could prevent patients from being able to afford critical treatments uh, and ultimately uh, harm patient health. And so at the end of the day, what the plaintiffs here are arguing is that this particular AI tool is being used to override what uh, the the real, the actual treating physician's determinations uh, as to medically necessary care that patients require. And uh, if what the plaintiffs say is that this is help, this is enabling the insurers to eliminate uh, labor costs associated with, with paying doctors and other medical professionals for the time needed to conduct uh, the, an individualized manual review of each of the claims. And so, you know, I, I think carried out, uh, if this is sort of carried out as we continue to see different developments, there's concern that uh, both you know, we will be disregarding uh, determinations as to medical necessity by by providers and systematically denying claims uh, of patients, um, which both um, takes providers out of the discussion when it comes to clinical care and, and then can also lead to, to worse um, patient outcomes. And so uh, certainly I think these types of uh, lawsuits will be really important to watch in, in the years ahead as we continue to see a rapid development of AI tools. Well said. I'm going to continue to scroll down to the bottom just so that the audience can see the various aspects on the web page. There's one section here that we didn't get a chance to discuss in a previous case, but I want to maybe highlight it now, and that is related litigation. Uh, as you alluded to earlier in a conversation, many healthcare cases and healthcare law in general tend to have a lot of correlations among different judicial rulings. In related cases, there's often a legal pattern that appears, at least from my non-lawyer eyes. Can you highlight why you would like to discuss related litigation and what the impact is for the people who are visiting the site? I think that's exactly right. I think to the point you just raised is that in part, that's of course part of why we wanted to create the healthcare litigation tracker is because often we're not seeing this type of litigation in, in isolation. We're really trying to show the, the broader picture. And I think when it comes to AI and some of these other cases, we have this related litigation tag at the bottom because let's say you're interested in what's going on in uh, both the development of different AI tools and what litigation you've seen to date. By then, if you scroll through at the bottom and see some of these cases, you can then you can click on those cases, you can see what they're about, you can see where they are sort of in the litigation process, if there's been a decision or not, and get an understanding of how different courts are uh, approaching that issue. And so it all contributes to trying to provide a, a broader context of 
the the litigation picture and how it uh, how it's playing at across different issues. Certainly. Now let's transition on to the last case. This is Eli Lilly versus U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Great. Do so, mind... I... sorry. I apologize. Before you begin, would you mind simply discussing what 340B is, so that those who may not be familiar with that program understand the context of the case? That's a great question. Um, of course, like many, like many healthcare acronyms. You know, we have fewer term that 340B that people just um, don't and, and often just assume that you understand what its significance is. And so you know, 340B, which stands for a provision under the, the Public Health Service Act, which is one of the major um, you know, federal statutes that, that governs healthcare uh, in, in a range of different settings. Under a 340B program, drug manufacturers that participate in, in Medicare and Medicaid are required to sell certain outpatient drugs to safety net healthcare providers at uh, a discount. And these providers are supposed to use the savings from the discounts to provide comprehensive uh, services to underserved communities, including low-income individuals, uh, racial and ethnic minorities, and, and rural communities. Um, but you know, recent press reports suggest that certain hospitals may be taking advantage of a 340B program to pursue uh, greater profits rather than meet the needs of, of low-income patients. Uh, we've also seen, uh, again, a, a tremendous growth in the 340B program. And, and so now this is a program that uh, that affects many patients and, and billions of dollars in the, in the healthcare system. Yeah, this is certainly an important case that even those outside of the clinical world, perhaps those in the field of health journalism, or just those who are struggling economically to provide for their own health may be of interest. Yeah, exactly. So I'm going to go and scroll down here. And I see one key factor that's unique in this relative to the other cases, and that is the number of filings. And here we have 26. In the other cases, we had single-digit filings. Is that of any significance, or is that simply the nature of procedure when it comes to the cases themselves? So it really depends on, you know, this year, uh, there has been litigation in a range of different jurisdictions under the 340B program, and uh, in this case, pertains to certain uh, both regulatory and enforcement action that HHS took about um, drug manufacturers have to engage with certain contract pharmacies who are those that actually dispense and distribute the 340B drugs. And so, you know, both there are um, certain cases, um, whether they be at the district court level or at, uh, at the appellate courts, that uh, either there is more amicus briefs than uh, than other cases, um, and so that's why we'll see uh, more filings um, here. I think you know there's just this litigation has been going on across a range of different uh, jurisdictions, and so there was a range of back and forth between the the courts uh, and the parties about um, you know different uh, developments and, and what that meant. Um, sometimes it can be hard to predict uh, both. It may depend on the particular claims at issue. Um, uh, some claims, uh, the, the briefing just may um, be able to, you know, be uh, more straightforward for for court um, to to resolve, or similar to to other issues that have been going on here. I think we have both um, 
uh, statutory and constitutional claims. And so sometimes that can also make um, briefing go on longer as well. Certainly. Let me just scroll down so we can take a look at the related litigation and then we can close this web page. I want to transition perhaps and now talk about the future of the healthcare litigation tracker and where you see this now going one year and beyond. What are some of the immediate growth opportunities that you guys are seeking? That's a great question. I think, you know, I think as we consider different options to strengthen the site going forward, I do think we we recognize that users involve both lawyers and, and non-lawyers. And I do think what we want to do is make it easier for um, visitors to the site to be able to see different trends that might be um, going on across different cases. I think we also want to explore maybe are there uh, different graphics that we can add to make it easier for for users to understand are there other ways in which we can add additional context around particular cases or developments that um, just make it easier even if we haven't written something in, in longer form that explains the significance uh, of a case um, so I think to me it really I think our, our biggest focus is just on improving usability and accessibility for both lawyers and non-lawyers just to continue making this tool as uh, as effective as possible because certainly we help design the tool and so we know certain things that we like but I think what we're always trying to learn from is is, is new users that come to the site what they like what what they don't like what they are really looking for and of course there are some things that we're just we're not going to be able to accomplish but I think we we certainly will be considering uh, a range of different enhancements that can make it easier for both folks that are interested in these issues to find us and once they get on the website to uh, be able to decipher these complex legal issues. I want to perhaps jump to more speculative questions around case studies and ideal use cases. As you know, I'm passionate about physicians getting involved in the writing amicus briefs or other procedural aspects of litigation cases. Can you give some case studies on how an interested physician or an interested patient advocate can go onto the site and then navigate through it and learn how he or she may want to get involved? Certainly. So I think you could look at particular cases in which there's been a lot of filings uh, and been a lot of amicus filings. You could take, for example, right now, uh, one of the big lawsuits we're filing is a case related to the uh, preventive services provision under the Affordable Care Act. And that provision requires essentially all private health insurance plans to cover a set of preventive services from cancer screenings to mammograms to contraception to vaccines uh, with no, uh, without imposing cost sharing on, uh, on, on consumers. And so in that case, we've seen a number of different amicus groups from uh, different trade associations, um, from uh, policy experts, academics, economists. Uh, one, I think you can scroll through those amicus briefs to get a sense of the types of arguments that are made. Certainly, I think uh, sometimes those arguments are made by individual physicians. Sometimes they're made from different coalitions or trade associations re representing uh, physician interests. But I think you can get a sense of the types of arguments that are made how physicians are using their voice in these different uh, amicus briefs, and then try and explore uh, other cases that are maybe early on 
uh, in the process and in which there are still amicus opportunities. That's a great point and something I haven't considered. Just if you would bear with me as I think aloud for a moment. As a physician, suppose I'm interested in the 340B program or something related to access to care. I can look at some of the more prominent cases featured, look at the amicus briefs, read some of the legal arguments, determine what I may agree with, what I may not agree with, and then perhaps apply similar frameworks of logic on newer cases that would appear on the healthcare tracker. Yes, I think that's right. I think sometimes the challenge is that you may not find out about a case until we're sort of towards the end of the process. Uh, For example, in in two of the cases I think we discussed, we've really gone through the full filing amicus brief stage, and we're now, there's been oral argument in front of a a panel of judges, and now we're just waiting for a decision. And so in those cases, there's not currently an amicus opportunity in those courts. It could be that those cases reach uh, the Supreme Court, there would then be amicus opportunities there. But I think to your, you're exactly right to note, if you're interested and you go through the amicus briefs and you say, you know, I really wish there was discussion of X, X issue. Um, I think that's something to keep in mind for, for future cases, whether it be in 340B or in other access cases, maybe right after you see uh, a complaint, uh, when you see, oh, there's a new case that's, that's on the tracker. Um, oh, I see there's just a complaint being filed. Maybe we're still early on in the process. That's where I think you can uh, try and identify ways to uh, get more involved uh, in the amicus process. Um, and typically, and this is something that's interesting, uh, there are often very set rules about amicus briefs in the appellate courts, but at the district court level, it really is uh, usually up to the judgment of a particular district court judge. Uh, most district court judges do allow amicus uh, uh, filings at the in the lower courts. There are some who decide that uh, you know, they can decide the, the issue just from the filings from, from the parties in the case. So um, you know, I think the more, it, the more interest that, that folks have in getting involved in the amicus process, I would just encourage folks to click through different cases, see what filings there have been, see maybe cases that are earlier in, in the life cycle, and then can further uh, explore different amicus opportunities. Well said. I'd like to conclude by asking more of an individual question to Zachary Barron, not necessarily on behalf of the Healthcare Litigation Tracker or the Anil Institute, but really just asking for advice as somebody who's seen health legislation, health policy, and health litigation. What are the more effective venues by which physicians can get involved in health policy as it pertains to cases decided in the courts. We talked a lot about the amicus briefs. Do you see that as among the more powerful or do you see other avenues for physicians to get involved as well? That's a great, um, that's a really great question. So I think, and I'm someone that uh, I both worked on these issues as they proceed through uh, through the courts. I previously worked at CMS uh, at, at a federal agency under the Department of Health and Human Services on the implementation of the Affordable Care Act. I also spent a number of years working uh, uh, as a counsel on, on different congressional committees during the policymaking process. And so what I would just encourage to those that are interested in ways to get more engaged here is to really think about trying to get engaged in all three phases. Certainly, uh, I would encourage, um, whether it be, you know, 
physicians, whether it's by themselves or in in different coalitions, to get engaged uh, as these policy matters move through debate on uh, on Capitol Hill, whether that's um, sending statements to the record, trying to meet with staff in uh, both in personal offices as well as congressional committees on, on issues that are of interest. Um, so I would say try and find ways to engage in that process to the extent that there are is um, ongoing regulatory activity. There is, of course, generally, uh, you know, most frequently, there's notice and comment rulemaking by which the a federal agency will put out a proposed regulation of how they are considering approaching an issue and then solicit public comment. Often you have 30 or 60 or sometimes more days to respond to that. And certainly individual um, physicians can submit comments there. And then uh, as we're seeing, and as I alluded to, increasingly we're seeing litigation uh, in all phases of these major healthcare policy disputes, and the courts have the final say uh, uh, often on uh, on these major uh, disputes. And so then that's where I do think that amicus briefs can play an important role in terms of uh, providing more context about the clinical implications of these different lawsuits, what it's going to mean to uh, physicians and the patient population that they serve, so that courts can be uh, as fully informed as possible when they are making their decisions. And so I really think there is importance in engaging at all um, at all phases of the level. I'm someone that has you know worked uh, worked on these issues through all three phases. And uh, I think what I often see is that someone says, well, I'm just going to work uh, on them when Congress considers them. And then I'm just going to, you know, I don't have the capacity, which is fair and, and is a challenge. But I do think then you can be missing the picture of what proceeds through the agency process and then inevitably um, how things turn out in the courts. Well said. Uh, and with that, Mr. Zachary Barron, I want to thank you so much for your time. And I would encourage those of you who are listening and watching to please view the healthcare litigation tracker and use it as a resource to understand the intersection of health law and healthcare. Thank you so much. Thank you.